You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, I'll take you to Digital Pharma East, a live and virtual conference that Fierce hosted earlier this month. So if you missed it, don't worry. I've got an exclusive clip. But first up, let's talk about data privacy. For over a decade, federal legislators have kicked around the idea of a national data privacy law, but to no avail. This July, Representative Frank Poloni introduced the American Data Privacy and Protection Act into the House, where it's now stalled. The bill would not cover health data already protected by HIPAA. Instead, if the act passes, companies would have to limit the amount of personal data they gather from customers. Those are companies like Facebook, period tracker apps, Amazon, Maps, companies that keep track of what we like, how we feel, where we go, and what we do. Sure, we can opt in to this data collection by clicking the I accept box, but most people don't read the privacy policies. And if they do, it's hard to make sense out of them. And many users are not aware that when they opt in, they're often agreeing to allow third-party vendors to access their data. The average app on your phone has 10 additional parties siphoning off your data through these agreements. As it relates to health data, the ADPPA, which is short for American Data Privacy and Protection Act, says that it would protect any information that describes or reveals the past, present, or future physical health, mental health, disability, diagnosis, or healthcare treatment of an individual. The bill comes at a time when more tech companies are breaking into the healthcare space and eyes are turning to the protection of reproductive health data. To gain insight into the bill's uncertain future, Pierce's Annie Berkey reached out to Devin McGraw, former Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at the Department of Health and Human Services. Devin now holds the position as Lead of Data Stewardship and Sharing at the medical genetic company Invitae. Annie spoke with Devin about data protection and how the ADPPA would affect hospitals and the health system. Here's Annie and Devin. Devin, thank you for speaking. Thank you very much for inviting me. How would you say the data privacy conversation is different now? Well, you know, the data privacy conversations always fluctuate a little bit based on other things that are going on. So, for example, we we were focused very much when I was at the um, at OCR on putting better guidance out on the right of patients to get their data, but mostly because, well, we needed it, that was for sure. But we were leveraging an opportunity that was related to, at that time, the federal All of Us Healthcare Research Program, which was going to be about contributions to data made by patients. So we had this opportunity. And so it, it between that and, and more vigorous enforcement, those were sort of the issues of the day. You know, fast forward several years and we have, you know, reactions to the Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case. We have increasing needs for interoperability of health information and the intersection of the information blocking rules in HIPAA driving much of the conversation. And yet at the same time, there are some 
sort of perennial issues that come up time and time again. And how do we robustly enforce the rule uh, in light of, of few resources? How do we deal with um, increasing risks around cybersecurity? What do we do about the increasing amount of health data that is outside of the HIPAA regulatory space? Yeah, and I think that's a great point, bringing up the overturning of Roe v. Wade and leads well into my next question, because my understanding is that the ADPPA would address health data that exists outside the purview of HIPAA. And when we last spoke, Senator Murray had just called on HHS to strengthen federal privacy protections under HIPAA to prohibit providers from sharing patients' reproductive health information without consent. You think that expansions of HIPAA would be enough, or is the ADPPA necessary for health data privacy? I think we need both. Mm-hmm. So there definitely are um, ways that HIPAA is not as protective of data when the Dobbs decision essentially invites health data to be weaponized against individuals um, and potentially their medical providers for performance of certain procedures. That was not an issue that was necessarily raised uh, in in HIPAA from the very beginning. And so consequently, the regulations have a lot of leeway for law enforcement access to data. the, The Dobbs scenarios of of states essentially criminalizing the performance of certain procedures or obtaining certain procedures was not, I think, on anybody's radar screen at that time. So definitely HIPAA needs to be strengthened for the entities that are covered by it. At the same time, there's just a lot of health data that legitimately ends up outside of the HIPAA-covered ecosystem. Patients using apps, patients using social media tools, patients having location data turned on when they visit abortion clinics, just be very obvious about it. And none, and that's the data that, that is sort of falls outside of HIPAA protections and for which having the ADPPA is going to be really critical to answering some of, of the issues that have arisen in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And I think when we're talking in this space, we talk a lot about de-identification of data, tokenizing data, separating it from the individual, from their name, social security number, any identifying traits. And there has been a lot of talk about how HIPAA's de-identification standards may conflict with the ADPPA standards. What do you see as the crux of that conflict? You have to remember that HIPAA was put forward more than 20 years ago. And those de-identification standards and the methodologies for achieving de-identification have not been updated in 20 years. And yet the data ecosystem is, is really quite different. On top of that, HIPAA was actually deliberately not setting the bar for de-identification too high. They wanted to make sure that health data retained its utility when it was de-identified, but was de-risked uh, for identification purposes so that, so that you could still leverage data for research purposes. You could still, you know, use it for public health reporting. You could use it for, for even business analytics, which is necessary in, in healthcare. At the same time, when you have the identifiers removed, you're de-risking it. Today, they, they raise those de-identification standards to be a lot more stringent. You see that in the global data protection regulation in Europe. And again, you, you see it in some of the more recent state legislation here in the U.S. And then, of course, in the ADPPA, it's stronger. So what that means essentially is that health data that's covered by HIPAA is not going to be covered by the ADPPA. But when it gets de-identified in accordance with HIPAA standards, it 
it is no longer covered by the by HIPAA, but it is likely to be covered by the ADPPA because those um, standards for de-identification are stronger, and some of the data um, uh, that is widely used today in de-identified form might be regulated under the ADPPA. To me, that creates some issues where you think about all of the good that happens with HIPAA de-identified data around data analytics, around research, um, in in privacy protective ways, but not to the level of, uh, you know, we're going to regulate this under the ADPPA and require opt-in consent and, you know, some of the other measures that the ADPPA rightly put in place. Yeah. And I want to ask you a a question, a few questions in the future um, about health research, because I know last time we spoke, that seemed like a really important topic for you. I don't even think I asked you about it. You just brought it up. It was like, this (laughs) needs to be talked about. But first, I'd like to, um, before we look forward, I'd like to gain some context in this area. So there is the California Consumer Privacy Act that was passed in 2018, and that is the most robust data privacy law in the country. How did the CCPA handle this issue? Well, initially, the CCPA handled this issue exactly in the same way that the ADPPA does today, which is to say that data that is regulated under HIPAA is exempt from the CCPA. But when you have data that's de-identified in accordance with HIPAA standards, it does not, it, it, it falls out of protection of HIPAA, which means it's going to be picked up um, and covered by the CCPA unless it meets the CCPA's more stringent de-identification standards um, that would be more difficult to meet and preserve the utility of that data. So initially, the CCPA had the same issue that I raised before about, you know, the ADPPA potentially being a barrier to medical research, but they fixed it. Mm-hmm. California legislature passed a subsequent piece of legislation that um, basically allowed for uh, medical research to take place using data de-identified in accordance with HIPAA standards, as long as it was done so consistent with federal research rules. So it is quite puzzling that this same issue uh, in the ADPPA has not yet been addressed, at least in versions of the bill that I've seen. Yeah, and so that's that's what I'd like to hone in on and enter this uh, fun world of speculation, looking at the future. Obviously, the bill is not in its final form. Obviously, the bill might not even pass. But to understand this area of data privacy on the federal level, I think it is good to look at this. Are you concerned that if the ADPPA passed as it is today or as it is the last time you read it, um, are you concerned it would stymie health research? Yes, I think it could have a big impact on healthcare research. Um, you know, the, the tricky part when you think about health data research is that the a lot of people get very concerned about commercial uses of health data. Mm-hmm. And yet, we have commercial companies that that have access to healthcare data for legitimate research purposes. I mean, it's sort of the nature of our healthcare system, right? Drug development occurs through through um, you know techno- through innovation and done by a lot of for profit companies. Um, you know, so is medical device development. The data that's needed in order to facilitate um, those activities is you know data that has this kind of dual commercial and research purpose. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you see a lot of times in health data privacy laws is, is an attempt to kind of rein in commercialization of, of private data. Um, and yet in healthcare, we, we, we do want it to be privacy protected, right? We don't, we don't, this can't run amok mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. people won't trust the healthcare system, right? So you have to have some way of regulating healthcare research. But if you do that by, by creating this kind of squeeze on data availability based on, um, you know, the fact that the, the data might be, might result in commercial gain for someone, you're, you're going to, you're definitely going to create some obstacles to, uh, medical research because it's going to be harder for research across, you know, disparate data sets involving large numbers of people for whom obtaining opt-in consent can be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, and potentially bias the data set. And just to clarify, because, uh, you know, showing all my cards here, I have not read all of the ADPPA as it currently stands. It, it, it is lengthy, um, to say the least. Um, <laughs> so, Currently, within the ADPPA, uh, research is not tied to the federal definition of research, correct? Well, there's not a research exemption at all, at least the last time I looked. Now, of course, you know, it's always hard to keep up with what's the latest draft of legislation once you, you know, because a lot of times there will be, you know, sort of subsequent iterations that are shared among among a group of stakeholders, but it's Mm. not always available to the broader public, not only because they're long, but just because... There's just a lot that goes on in the sausage making and not everybody's sort of aware of it. So this is a long-winded way of saying, I don't know that I've seen the latest draft either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my sense is that, you know, what we were sort of focused in on that to the best of my knowledge has not yet been addressed is this exemption for HIPAA-covered data mm-hmm. that which again, because when you have data that's HIPAA de-identified, it falls out of HIPAA coverage, which means it is fair game for being covered by the ADPPA and the ADPPA having more stringent de-identification standards that might not be able to be met with the kind of data that is needed for medical research and no research exemption. Mm, I see you. And something that you brought up that I want to touch back on is about bias data. And obviously, this is an ongoing issue. This is something that is continually being um, re-examined, readdressed. Is that an area that you think research would hurt the most? Or are there other areas that you think research would also be constricted that we should be most concerned about? Well, I think the biggest concern when you sort of subject medical research that requires the contribution of a lot of people's data to um, a a requirement for opt-in consent, the biggest concern is that you won't get sufficient numbers of Mm -hmm. people to power the study. And not because everyone said no, but because you just couldn't reach people. Mm -hmm. You know, people have busy busy lives. I mean, yes, some people say no, for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more an issue of you can't get a hold of them reliably. And so I think the bigger concern is that the data sets get biased in the sense that they they are only the people who were paying attention mm-hmm. and who opted in, as opposed to for certain types of research needing very large numbers of participants, um, you kind of need everyone in the pool, uh, ideally. And if you can find a way to do it that is 
that is advancing science, that isn't just for pure commercial use, and that is being done in a privacy-enhancing way, even though you didn't necessarily get the consent of every person to do it, that and 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 again, it's contributing to the advancement of science. I think we need to judge research by a different set of metrics than did did we get the consent of every single person. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of conversations about that right now. I don't know if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast Revisionist History, but this whole season is about research and um, about like research on the the famous study involving starvation, that so much of what we understand about starvation was done by the study that would not get approved today in any yep. way, shape, or form. Yep. Um, and so we we need a really nuanced conversation there. Um, unfortunately, there are so many other things to talk about with this bill, so I might need to bring you back to talk about research later. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> outside of research, do you think the ADPPA would hogtie other areas of healthcare? I don't think so. And I think that's one of the reasons why the healthcare industry has not been paying that much attention to the ADPPA, because I think most people see that HIPAA exemption or they hear anecdotally that there's a HIPAA exemption. And, you know, much of the healthcare industry is covered by HIPAA. So they think, oh, okay, we don't have to worry about this. It's great that there is this bill to protect data outside of the world that I live in. But I don't have to worry about it. And and I certainly haven't seen anything in the bill that I thought would be problematic to healthcare other than these research issues that we've just spent some time talking about. So so personally, I think it would be enormously advantageous it, to healthcare if the ADPPA were to pass. Because one of the things that we are trying to accomplish in healthcare is the sharing of healthcare outside of typical, you know, sort of HIPAA-controlled bubble sharing data with patients, allowing them to use it and populate it in medical apps um, or using it in, in, you know, use of personal devices by, by patients to inform healthcare. And that involves the collection and access to data outside of healthcare. And there's a great amount of resistance mm-hmm. to that kind of interoperability. Oh, because that data isn't private and, and, and patients are going to be taken advantage of by unscrupulous apps that that will sell their data unknowingly or that will ship their data off to uh, you know to foreign adversaries it has created a, a genuine drag on interoperability mm. initiatives the electronic frontier foundation the EFF argued that both regulators should be allowed to enforce the bill something else you and I talked about um, in relation to the EFF was their conversation about federal preemption and um, Obviously, here, a big part of that that issue is that if these laws are, if data privacy laws are going through the federal government, being enforced by the federal government, um, the ADPPA, if it passed, would need to be altered through Congress for new threats. Um, it would lose some flexibility there. And the EFF said, we want states to have their own laws. So then when new threats rise up, when we have an issue with something like health research, uh, we can change it faster. We all see how slow Congress is in those changes. So based on our previous conversation, I know that you disagree with the EFF about federal preemption and that you think a bill for all that is less stringent is preferable to comprehensive protections for some. Do you see any validity in the EFF's argument? Yes, of course I see validity in their argument. I mean, I 
before I went into the federal government, I was at the Center for Democracy and Technology. And I think I argued the very same thing, right? States as laboratories of, of innovation around policymaking because they can act much more quickly. Um, and they have acted much more quickly in the consumer privacy context. Um, on the other hand, I guess I'm really a pragmatist, and this may be colored a bit by the fact that I also work for a company now, in addition to, you know, being very bullish and supportive of a strong privacy law, um, is, is we don't get legislation through the, through this Congress without preemption. We just don't. Mm-hmm. It, it loses the support of, of pro-business policymakers because the companies don't want to be subject to multiple, uh, multiple laws in different states. They, they, they would rather have a single law now, admittedly, they'd rather have a single law that wasn't terribly strong. That's another problem. So I assume you believe, yes, it should be this bill at this time. Well, it's interesting. We have some things, as we talked about, that I would like to see changed in the bill. And in part, because I think, given that the we have this California model that fixed it. Like we, you know, we can, we can go there. They went there. They had CCPA first. They've had the experience, a bit of experience in enforcing their law. And, and given what I'm seeing in terms of the drag on interoperability initiatives, I think federal privacy legislation is important. And because I think it won't pass without some preemption, I think it's important for it to have preemption in it because I also think it probably won't pass without some other enforcement authorities other than the federal government. I think we need to address that too. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, this, people have been hanging out, to use the train metaphor, people have been hanging out at the station for over a decade now. Um, and we do have Na- Nancy Pelosi spoke openly against the bill in support of the CCPA. Um, we have people that are really not on board for this. So if we are to take a 10,000-foot globalized view, do you have a sense of whether or not the bill will pass? Yeah, it sure doesn't look like it right now. I mean, that's, <laughs> I think it's really unfortunate, and we'll see whether the midterm elections have any impact on, on you know, some of the sort of dug-in support and non, you know, non-support for the bill. I think it's, I think it's un- in some respects, a bit unfortunate that California feels like I think it's a bit unfortunate that in order to preserve California's law, the rest of us don't get privacy protection. Mm. And I certainly, but I've also seen some analyses of the, the a compare and contrast of the ADPPA versus the CCPA. And it's not, you know, sort of a slam dunk that the CCPA is stronger across the board. They're in many respects, they are equivalent. And mm. in some respects, the ADPPA is stronger. It's a strong law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on, on some level, it's a, it's a bit unfortunate that, um, that it has become an issue of California needing to preserve its law over the rest of the country. Maybe we do need to preserve some cross, um, jurisdictional authorities between the different federal agencies involved, but that's all, um, that all feels like, um, resolvable stuff to me versus line drawn in sand. No, no bill that preempts my state law is going to pass. That's basically saying we will get no federal privacy law out of Congress. Well, I think that is a strong note to end on. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and really being willing to dive into all these different issues. I think this bill speaks to a lot of different conversations happening throughout the country. So um, thank you for joining us today on Podnosis. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure. 
That was Annie Berkey and Devin McGraw. Next week on Pugnosis, we're going to share the honorees of the Fierce Healthcare's special report on the 2022 Women of Influence. We looked for the best leaders from across the industry who have made a measurable impact in healthcare over the past year and who are paving a new path forward for both men and women in the industry. So tune in next week to hear all about Fierce Healthcare's Women of Influence. Pharma companies are all in on digital health technologies. And why not? If apps, sensors, and wearables help them engage with patients. These are tools that can monitor medication and connect with providers. Recent M&A activity and partnership deals point to a growth in digital health. In March, AstraZeneca took a $33 million stake in Huma Therapeutics, which makes a remote patient monitoring platform. Around the same time, Sanofi signed a $30 million agreement with digital therapeutics company Dario Health. And Bayer invested in the mental health startup Wobot. But we know there are social factors that impact patients' health status. For example, lack of transportation might mean that a patient can't pick up their medications at the pharmacy. Or food deserts can make it impossible to find affordable, healthy food and essential for diabetics or anyone to maintain a healthy life. But what about combining the two concepts? There are opportunities to leverage digital health tools and social determinants data to improve patients' health. Bayer Pharmaceuticals, for example, is developing a digital health platform. It's leveraging population data to analyze patients' living conditions in order to adapt health interventions. Jean Caron, who is the Senior Vice President, Digital and Commercial Innovation, and CIO at Bayer Pharmaceuticals, talked about this during our Digital Pharma East conference. Fierce Healthcare Senior Editor Heather Landy had Jean on a panel along with Eddie Hunburgess, Head of Portfolio Management Digital Healthcare at Sanofi. The three chatted about the potential to use digital health to address social determinants of health. Here they are. Joining me today is um, Jean, who is Senior Vice President, Digital and Commercial Innovation and CIO at Bayer Pharmaceuticals, and Eddie, who is Ed, Head of Portfolio Management Digital Healthcare at Sanofi. So thanks to both of you for joining us for what should be a really interesting discussion. Could um, either one of you kind of provide some examples of, of how your companies are trying to address social determinants? Um, we are trying to really um, leverage the data. Mm -hmm. you know, we, are work, we are working on the development of a digital health platform, and we made a very detailed um, analysis of you know, kind of conditions of living of a cardiovascular patient. Mm -hmm. you know, it included going down to the zip code for the U.S. and trying to see where the people are located. What is the environment, the incidence of obesity, diabetes, or, and cardiovascular conditions telling you about the surroundings and the potential and the impact of the surroundings, trying to adapt your recommendation also to where the patient is living. You're not going to ask somebody to, in terms of you know, exercise to go out walking at night if it's in a not that safe neighborhood. Right. Okay? You, you, you need to have those data taken into account and what kind of interventions you're going to propose to the patients in terms of digital health. So that's very pragmatically what we do. 
Now, if I want to extend the discussion a bit broader you know, to other locations, we are also doing a lot in terms of considering what could be the solutions for um, low- and middle-income countries. Mm. And try to adapt and think, okay, maybe not everybody has a high-speed connection and maybe not everybody has a cell phone or a smartphone, just kind of a very basic phone. So how can we translate that and make it accessible? On which backbone and which infrastructure uh, we, are, um, we can build a digital health system? Something we are discussing with um, a startup that has been awarded uh, by our foundation. Um, they are working in Africa. They are called Zuri Health. And they use the as a backbone the uh, phone network, you know, just uh, the telcos network. And it's also a matter of saying, okay, you need to adapt not only the content to that, but you also need to adapt the technology so the technology can be accessed by the people you want to reach. Right. Um, I think Sanofi is not very dissimilar in that we certainly look at our community engagements and corporate social responsibilities. But I want to talk a little more specific to our own team and how we incorporate and address social determinants of health. And we do it in three distinctive principles. One, in our construction of the portfolio of digital healthcare solution. A great example is our partner solution that we launched this year, Daria Health. Um, uh, one, it, it uses native API to adopt the accessibility and disability accommodation settings of your phone. We looked at so many digital healthcare solutions that use font size 5. And as a person of disability, looking at font size text is impossible. And especially given that our addressable patient population is generally older and with diabetes, um, the visual acuity is a concern. So something that minute as using native API to adopt the features of individual user was important for us. Um, we also um, looked at how much data and broadband do you need in order for you to operate this digital healthcare solution. Um, and, last, and lastly, within the portfolio selection, we, um, we, we look at imageries. Um, and it sounds really simple and, and, and elementary, but it's so important for me as a person of color and as a gay man to see someone who looks like me in my own journey. And, and you wouldn't believe how many digital healthcare solutions would not adopt something that basic. Uh, and our second principle is around development. How do we develop digital features that are culturally sensitive, culturally competent features that really target down to a specific social determinants of health? In our last work stream, which is data and evidence generation, um, we are very targeted. Um, in, in how much subpopulation analyses we do to best understand what social determinants of health, but more importantly, what combinations of social determinants of health that we can address. And, and also within that team, as we design evidence generation study, we challenge each other constantly. Every design choice we make in a study formation, what biases do these design choices bring about. And if I may squeeze one more in, I think even in our 
uh, even our uh, development and in our evidence generation, we deliberately go out and look for data sources that are representative of the people that we're, we're trying to address. There are so many data sources that tend to skew because of eligibility criteria or the underlying data switches toward wider, wealthier, and healthier population. And we explicitly do not work with those data sources to account for the generalizability of the population that we're trying to address. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing those examples. This has been a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And remember, next week we're discussing the Fierce Healthcare's Women of Influence. You won't want to miss that one. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.